Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Congratulations, everyone. We have made it to the second quarter of 2023. Okay, how many of you just rolled your eyes? But I do, as much as the first quarter just flew by and in my own business, as well as I really know within the fraud industry, it's been a tough year so far. And it feels like it's been a tough year in a series of tough years. So if you're feeling that way, you can at least know that you're not alone. And as they say, misery loves company. So you're in good company. But it is April. And that does mean that the 1st of April has already passed. If you are active on LinkedIn, or as my daughter would call it, fraud LinkedIn, just like there's different types of or different parts of TikTok or different parts of Instagram, there's different groups within LinkedIn, right? So if you are, then you may have seen an announcement that both myself and Frank McKenna made on Saturday that I was launching a new solution provider company, a new vendor company in the fraud space called Silver Bullet. And our first product was called The Fraudinator. Keep in mind that this, if you did not read this article, I'm going to read it to you because I think it's funny. And please keep in mind, this was published on April 1st. April 1st is also commonly known as April Fool's Day. I don't actually know the story behind that, and I don't know if that's a U.S.-specific thing. I apologize if you're, but I'm sure everybody's familiar with it. So I'll tell you the backstory behind how this company was invented in a minute. But first, I thought I'd read Frank's blog because it makes me laugh. And I know it has made a lot of you laugh if you already read it. And you know what? Sometimes laughter is the best medicine. So here's the article that Frank wrote, and this is on his blog, Frank on Fraud. Carice Hendrick, the host of Fraudology Podcast, has done it. She has been working on a new stealth company for years and finally launched it today, April 1st, 2023. The company is called Silver Bullet, and their first product is called The Fraudinator. And then uh, he shares the press release. For immediate release, Silver Bullet is thrilled to announce the launch of its all-in-one fraud solution that eliminates the need for all other solutions and fraud analysts. The solution called Fraudinator delivers zero false positives while maintaining a fraud detection rate of 125% or more. The extra 25% detection comes from specialized AI boosters that help companies turbo pass 100% detection of fraud. An industry first. Go to the website now to get early access. And then it keeps going. There is a testimonial from someone named William DePere at Paypeeps, and he said Fraudinator delivered 25% more fraud than we even have. I've never seen a chart go past 100% fraud detection, but that blew right past it to 125%. Silver Bullet solution leverages full AI, cloud-native capabilities, and a multi-layered approach to detect fraudulent activities before they become a threat vector. Another person who was quoted on this article, her name is Marlene Dilaponzi, 
and she is head of risk for Claim Jumper. She says, it's refreshing to finally see an all-in-one, zero-false-positive, best-in-class, multi-layered, risk-based decisioning, out-of-the-box game-changer that enables proactive orchestration in a post-COVID world against threat vectors. Nobody has done this before. The press release goes on to say, our silver bullet solution is vendor agnostic, and we offer seamless integration for businesses of all sizes. With our low-code slash no-code capabilities, businesses don't need to worry about bandwidth or manpower constraints. And with our white-glove service and out-of-the-hamburger-bun thinking, we're confident that businesses will love our innovative approach. Another quote coming out says, Fraudinator's multi-layered approach is like wearing a hundred shirts, each layer providing progressively more protection against fraud and bad actors. And the picture next to it is a man wearing a lot of shirts. And then here is a quote from me. We're excited to be the disruptor and game changer in the fraud industry, said Carice Hendricks, CEO of Silver Bullet. Not only do we stop all threat vectors, but we stop bad actors in their tracks. When was the last time you saw Steven Seagal in a movie? You can thank us for that. That's one of my favorite lines of our press release. Because bad actors is one of those words that drives people crazy. And, you know, it's true. When was the last time you saw Steven Seagal in a movie? You're welcome. We've developed our solution to handle scaled down ops so businesses can focus on what matters most. And with our model refresh capabilities and proactive approach, businesses can stay ahead of emerging fraud trends and detect fraudulent activities at the high end of the risk funnel. And then it has some other claims and things like that. It says, for more information, please visit our website at www.silverbullet.fun. And that is actually a real website because Frank always goes above and beyond. And remember, with Silver Bullet, you'll get zero fraud and zero false positives. And then the last part of this article says the advisory board contains some familiar names in the industry. Marianne Miller, Elon Musk, and Mark Zuckerberg are providing expert advice and millions in capital for the venture. I'm also involved in helping with marketing and bracket-busting buzzword-heavy press release. And it has pictures of our, our board and then the press release. So I really hope you got that that was our April Fool's prank. And here's the thing. I don't think I've ever done like a professional April Fool's prank. And not really a prankster. Oh, I certainly was my first year of college, but the boys floor of our dorm deserved it. And I think they started it and it caused a lot of messes and the janitors were not too happy. Apparently, well, teen year olds think it's really funny to put, you know, sacks of flour over the shower head so that when the shower turns on, it turns to glue or I don't know, gelatin, clear gelatin in the toilet bowls mixed with some hot water while uh, everyone on the dorm is out at a retreat. Apparently, janitors don't think that that's very fun to clean up. But that's a side note. We did do some fun ones, though. I think my favorite was when we moved every part of a buddy of mine's dorm room up to the roof, and we set it up just like in his dorm room. And mind you, I went to college before there were digital cameras, so we were doing everything by memory. But I took pictures of before and after, and they were pretty right on. But anyway, so other than that time in my life, I'm not really a prankster. However, and honestly, Frank and I didn't set out to do this. It wasn't like we were like, hey, wouldn't it be fun to do something for April Fool's? It actually started around MRC when several of us were talking about buzzwords. If you listened to the episode that we titled Sleep Deprived and Hangry at MRC Vegas, you heard me talk with six merchants. Three of them were able to identify themselves. Three of them were mystery merchants. And one of the questions I asked them on the last day of the conference was, what was a buzzword that you heard a lot? 
either one that you heard from solution providers a lot or that made you roll your eyes, or maybe it was a new word that you just heard a lot, like orchestration was one that people were like, I don't think I heard that last year, but that certainly was talked about a lot in presentations and sessions and conversations. After having that conversation about buzzwords, then we were joking about it and saying, wouldn't it be funny if we had like a contest or something like that with the biggest buzzword in fraud? And I just happened to see a March Madness bracket and I thought, oh, we can do that. It could be like a March Madness buzzword bracket. So I asked several groups of online fraud fighters, many of you and several other people to submit suggestions for buzzwords that you know knew that you're tired of or that you hear often or one that just you wish there was a better term for and I compiled a list of over 35 but then I thought I just feel like I'm missing a couple so I texted Frank and Frank McKenna and said hey what this is what I'm doing what kind of buzzwords do you think that I should add and he gave me several and then he said how many do you have total and I said I think like 42 or 43 I said, I have to narrow it down to 16 for the bracket. And he said, wouldn't it be funny if we put all of those into chat GPT and asked it to write a press release using all of those words for a fictitious vendor company? And I was like, yeah, that'd be hilarious. So I sent him all the words and he said, ooh, because Silver Bullet was one of them. He said, we should name it Silver Bullet. Like, all right, sure. And he goes, we should publish it as a blog. I'm like, yeah. And then I thought, oh, isn't April Fool's in a week? Like I said, Frank went above and beyond. He created a press release. He bought the domain of silverbullet.fun. I hope it wasn't too much. I need to, I really want to offer to pay him back for that. But it was just so funny. And then he also wrote the blog article. And so on Saturday morning, I woke up to a text from him because he wakes up before I do on Saturdays. And yeah, he said, I think we should post it now. And what do you think of this article? So we kind of went back and forth a little bit on text and then with edits and ideas and stuff. And I really wanted him on the board. And I honestly wanted him as a co-founder of the fictitious provider, but he had a good point. He's the co-founder of Point Predictive, which is an actual solution provider. And he didn't really want his investors to think that he was stepping out on them. And I understand that. It just, it makes sense, right? I guess there are some perks to being a free agent. So I was figurehead, so to speak. But I said, okay, okay, well, then you have to be on my board. And then just to make it funny, let's add Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, because we know how big of fraud experts they are. It was really fun. And honestly, those of you, it was just so funny to me to see the progression of the LinkedIn comments and reactions. The first thing I realized in the first 10 minutes was how many people in marketing for solution providers must have alerts set out on me because they liked it right away. And <laughs> I hadn't really ever noticed that before. I don't usually notice who or even how many people react to my posts or anything like that. I just like sharing information and having conversations with people. And the thing about LinkedIn is that often it can become a two-way conversation. And I always say on the podcast that even though it feels like a one-way conversation, I try hard to have it be a two-way conversation in as many ways as possible. And in one way, I feel like LinkedIn is an extension of that. So anyway, I noticed that. But then I also noticed who just blindly trusts me. There were several people that were like, congratulations, I wish you so much success. And I'm like, oh, make sure you read the article, please. I'm not quitting my podcast. I'm not stopping in the consultancy. I have a lot of projects going on and lots of fun, really for me, they're fun training 
opportunities coming up with some group trainings that I'll be launching soon and just a lot of other things. So I don't want anyone to think that I'm over here tinkering on a new solution provider. I learned long ago that I don't have the stomach to start a startup. It really takes a special person or special people to start a fraud technology startup. And as much as I really enjoy advising new startups in fraud technology, those that really have innovative solutions, and I really enjoy helping them with go-to-market and understanding this industry and all of that when I think that they have unique use cases and can really solve for things that people are interested in. And they have a really good track record on picking them because I am so picky. So I'm proud of that. But I just didn't want anyone to think that I was not doing what I'm doing. But then I also found out just how many people have such senses of humor. I do enjoy that a lot in this industry is just, I think it's important to have levity. And it's not that we don't take what we do seriously because we do, but because we take it so seriously, I think it's important to have fun. And the whole purpose of this press release and article was almost like putting a mirror up to the industry and saying, this is ridiculous. But the thing that got me was how many people read the press release or the blog article and still thought that it was real. And that there were a couple of people that said, gosh, I'm really embarrassed that I read it. And I thought, wow, OK, she's just coming out with some big claims. And I'm like, wow, do you not know that I am such a data nerd that I would have to explain exactly what the, not just the percentages, but the conditions behind them and why it was that and everything else. And I would never say 125 percent fraud detection and zero false positives, because I think even with zero percent fraud or 100 percent fraud detection, you're going to have a lot of false positives. We're constantly walking that balance. But I told them not to feel bad because honestly, I think that's a reflection of where messaging in our industry has gone to. And Sadly, it seems like the companies that have the biggest overpromises and the biggest marketing budgets and the biggest buzzwords are usually the ones that at least I hear a lot of not so great things about from their users. Just take that for what it will. But I also wonder how many marketing departments are going to start trying to scrub all of these buzzwords out. By the way, I did create that buzzword bracket and I have it on LinkedIn and I'll provide a link to it in the show notes for this episode. Fill it out. It's fun. So we have 16 words in the bracket that are often used. And the whole point is for you to select the most overused word. And once you do that, you'll email it to my assistant at info at chargelyxconsulting.com. And you'll be entered into a drawing to win one of four pretty fun prizes. One of them is a gift basket of a lot of unique fraud items that I have collected around here from swag to other fun things. And I'll throw a gift card in there too. You'll get to pick if you want a physical package shipped to your house or if you want a digital gift card. So make sure you do that. I think it's just like I said, I think it's fun. I feel like people want to know the buzzwords, but you've got to download the bracket. And I did post it on LinkedIn last week, so you can look there as well. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. 
But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models. And their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. So there's been a lot of fraud topics that I've wanted to discuss lately. When I had David Maimon on the podcast a few weeks ago, he was talking about uh, all the different methods out there. And there really are zillions of methods that are impacting online companies. If you don't know which methods are targeting you, I highly recommend at the very least searching for your company name in Telegram and Discord and maybe Reddit or hiring an e-crimes investigation company to really do a deep dive in the forums and the groups to figure out what methods are being used. And you'll realize, oh, that's why we see this or that or whatever. My guest next week is going to be Diana Gajic Physic, and we are going to deep dive into refund fraud for retailers. I've actually been calling this refund claim fraud, and it's very different from payment fraud. And I think it gets looped in. And we've actually had a really interesting trajectory over the last three years where it went from not realizing it was fraud and so many different departments within retailers doing research, whether it was supply chain or the warehouse or customer service or you know, logistics or operations. And then if you are a fraud fighter on the ground, you know that you often are the person who is come to usually last with the most random problems. Because you know that all of the processes for your company from beginning to end and all of the systems and all of the technology, because you have to from a fraud fighting perspective. And you love puzzles. You love to solve puzzles. So why not? Three years ago, a little over three years ago, we didn't realize this was fraud as an industry. I think there were two of the largest retailers that did know it, but they weren't really involved or engaged with the industry. So they didn't, they didn't really communicate that, and that's okay. So Diana and I were part of a group of retailers, or myself and a group of retailers, who really heard this in the craziest ways. And we'll talk about that more on Tuesday's episode and just some of the different methods and all that. And there's so much about refund fraud. I did a six-hour combined training. I think it was two hours over three weeks for a group of 25 retailers. It was of an in-depth training that I did charge for. And I did that a year and a half, two years ago, and really dove into all five of the different methods and then the different spin-offs of each method and all that. 
And I'm revising that and adding some of the, I don't want to call them solutions, but some of the tactics that merchants have found to reduce them. And a lot of those tactics I can't talk about on the podcast. Well, I should say I won't talk about on the podcast because I subscribe to a lot of Telegram groups. And my favorite thing is to see one of the retailers that I've worked with named in one of those groups. And people say, this method doesn't work anymore. This method doesn't work anymore. That method was patched. I'm like, yes, but it's after studying these guys for three years, knowing, okay, if you fix this, then this is where they're going to go. And if you do that, then this is what they're going to do. So this is what you have to do to get ahead of them. So watch out for that training. I'm hoping to launch it in the next couple of weeks. It'll be a live training first. And then I really am hoping to offer it online for on-demand. I'm hoping to cram it all into four hours, but next week's episodes, and I'm thinking it's probably going to be two episodes because it's Diana and I, will be diving into all that we can share on a public platform. And then if you're interested in learning more, let me know or keep an eye out on LinkedIn, or I'm hoping to have information about it on next week's episode. But the reason I was talking about methods is because there's a new method for sale that one of the retailers in the group found. And this has nothing to do with refund fraud. It's actually a method that's exploiting private label cards. And it's just, it's crazy to me. And the only, honestly, it would exploit all credit cards. And they do have access to all 16 digits of victims' credit cards without any data breach or anything else. And this is very U.S. specific because data brokers, I don't know how else to say it. But the reason why it doesn't work on bank cards like Visa, MasterCard, Amex, and Discover is because most, if not all, online companies require the CVV, so the last three digits on the back of the card, or the four digits on the front of an Amex card and the expiration date. And credit reports don't provide those. But most retailers that accept their own credit cards, their own private label cards, they don't ask for CVV or expiration date. And there are reasons for that. I'll share that in just a minute. So basically, you've got the bank cards from Visa, MasterCard, Amex, and Discover, and those will always require CVV and expiration date now. And that's because it's really accepted in the market. Everyone knows, okay, if I use my Visa or MasterCard, I need to know those. I don't know about you, but I have most of my CVV and expiration dates memorized of the cards that I use the most. But that's also why some people choose to use wallets, right? They'll just put that funding credit card in the wallet and have it funded. And the ultimate goal for all of those issuing banks that have bank cards is for them to be top of wallet. They want to be the number one card that is chosen to be put on file with large retailers and all of that. And you've got private label cards for large retailers. And I feel like this first started in the 90s. It was a big push. I actually worked in retail clothing stores in my local mall in high school. And I remember getting $25 each time somebody opened up a private label credit card. And I wasn't even 18 yet. And I was helping them fill them out with all of their PII, of course. But this is late 90s. So times have changed. But stores want to give incentives as well because then they make more money and they don't have to pay interchange to the other issuing banks. They're making that money in-house as well as any money on interest, etc. So there's often offers on private label cards, right? You open a card and you get $100 off your first order. You open a card and you get 20% off. And while the bank card's goal is to be top of wallet, Private label cards have another term, 
And it's an industry term and it makes me laugh, but it's underwear drawer card. So I don't know, but I, the theory is, and then they're probably right. Most people don't have their private label cards in their wallet every day. So they want to make those purchases online as easy as possible. And that's why they don't ask for CVV and expiration date. And oftentimes if you have an online account stored with that retailer, your private label card number is stored in there too. And all you have to do is check a box, which is very dangerous for me in Nordstrom, but that's a whole other story. What one of these retailers realized, and I just think that this is such a good demonstration of multi-platform exploits. Frank and I were talking about it just on Tuesday with Cash App, right? Usually Cash App is one of many platforms that is being exploited. And it isn't always necessarily considered fraud on the Cash App side. If funds come from illicit sources, but from a traditional bank transferred to Cash App, how are they supposed to know where those sources came from other than knowing the bank? I'm not a cash up apologist. I'm just saying that's one example. And when I had I let Bigger Eleven on the podcast a couple months ago now, she talked about knowing where your company is in the scam life cycle. And maybe that's a better term for it. Rather than multi-platform or multi-system methods, it's, you know, the scam life cycle, right? How is your company being used? And there are several companies that are being used for fraud that probably don't realize it. Or if they do, it's helping them because they're getting account openings or other things and it's helping their valuation. I'm not cynical. I'm just skeptical. That's my favorite phrase from one of my favorite fraud fighters. So basically, this is the method that this retailer discovered because they were seeing all of a sudden a lot of fraud on private label cards. And first it was account takeover, which is obviously common. And they put some things in place to be able to prevent the account takeover. We'll leave it at that. And then that calmed down for a little bit on their private label card. But then they started to see new accounts being opened or guest checkouts happening, but on a private label card. And those were being reported as fraud. So they went looking around and investigating and they found a couple methods for sale. And this retailer has at least one, if not a couple of people on their team that will sometimes do what they call in the drug industry controlled buys, but basically buy their buy a method about their own store to see how it's getting attacked. And what they learned was, and it just it's exhausting to me, but basically what this method said is you really don't need a social security any number anymore. Or if you do, you only need the last four digits of a social security number of another person if you want to steal from them. And you may not know what cards they have, but there are many ways that you can get lists of consumers with their names and the last four digits of their social and their addresses. That's all you need to look up credit reports on some of these new websites in the U.S. that aren't from the credit bureau, but they are, they're considered credit repair sites or credit optimization sites. This one in particular that I know is very helpful in this method and other methods that I'm looking at. They say that they are the first, or they say that they are a website to offer free credit scores and full credit reports that are updated on a daily basis. But we consider that just an appetizer, as we've built the brain of an artificially intelligent financial advisor that will truly leave you having more money. So, this company or this artificial intelligent financial advisor performs three primary functions. One, providing customized credit improvement advice. Two, personalized savings alerts. 
and three, 24-7 wallet surveillance. So they're looking at all your cards. So people will often, if you have an account with them, you can link all of your credit cards to your account so they can monitor all your charges. And they say that everything is free. It's 100% free. You have unlimited credit reports, unlimited credit scores, credit monitoring protection, credit improvement tips, and it also helps you find savings. So it sounds great, right? But the problem is that fraudsters are using this site because all they need to do is have the last four digits of someone's social security number, their name, and their address, and they are given their free credit report, not just the score. So they no longer have to go out to one of the three main credit reporting agencies and put in all of the information like full social and answer some crazy out-of-wallet questions that my poor 85-year-old grandmother who had dementia prior to passing away could not remember. She kept failing those out-of-wallet questions and it was driving me nuts. But so people have found an easier way. And then here's the crazy part. Once they get in there, the first 12 digits of every credit card on someone's credit report is shown. I don't understand why this company does that. I think even credit reporting agencies don't full 16 digits. At least they shouldn't anymore for PCI. But if you showed the first 12 digits of someone's credit card, and if you now have a target and you're like, okay, this person has a card here, a card there. And I know that I want the private label cards because they don't require CVV or expiration date to be accurate. I'm going to take whatever private label cards they have. And then I'm going to go to another website that is similar to that, where they have another kind of credit lookup. And it gives you the last four digits of that card. So what do you know? You get 12 digits from one website. You get four from the other. Now you have all 16 digits of someone's private label card. And chances are, as if they have one private label card, they probably have several. And now you also know their credit scores and you know their limits because that's on the credit report. So you go shopping on those. I just, it blew my mind. The U.S. just also blows my mind that there are so many different services out there. And it's almost like every company, every company is only thinking about themselves. They're only in a silo. They're not thinking about how they can be used to exploit people's credit reports or to steal from people. But, and this company may say, hey, we're getting a lot of data on people. And because that's the only thing I can think of that they're making their money is by selling a lot of data about how people are spending money and how they're saving and how that relates to their credit reports and all of that. You know, this company may not think that they're being stolen from, but they are being used to commit a fraud and to commit identity theft. This retailer has already found ways to identify this within their system. But I was talking to another retailer like a week or two later, who I know has a large private label card program. And they were saying, oh, we had that two years ago and it escalated to card cracking. And I went, oh no. And what's also called as bin fraud, but for private label, I don't know if it's called bin fraud, but basically, and I talked about this on a previous episode where I talked about whenever a consumer says that their credit card number keeps getting used to commit fraud, even if they cancel their card, I provided several ways that can happen. And one of those ways of happening is figuring out the issuing bank's mod 10 algorithm. If you, as a retailer, have seen this type of fraud and you've seen your private label cards being exploited, it's possible it's through this method. There are hundreds of methods out there. And basically, there are fraudsters that have found different ways to exploit 
your service or your website or others or using your service to exploit others. Because to commit fraud, they need to do three things. They need to gather the data, which is what they do on this credit site, credit monitoring and all that. They need to commit the crime, which is using the private label card. And then they need to cash out, which for this is having the item shipped to them or to a drop address nearby. And there's so many people, these types of methods, and this is what I was talking with David Myman about, are often used by younger men, 16 or 15 to 28, 29. This is just prolific. And there's a whole culture out there with scam rap and everything else out there where this is their way of hustling. This is like the new drug dealing, if not a hundred times worse and a hundred times more. But I also know that other credit monitoring sites are also being used in similar ways because they might give eight digits of the card or six digits of the card. And I just don't know how they're getting away with that because for merchants doing payment processing anyway, everything has to be truncated. It has to be the first six, last four, which it's going to be interesting now that in a week or so, Visa's moving officially to eight-digit bins, which they have been talking about since 2016, and it's finally happening, which your processors and gateways should be all over. If you haven't heard them talk about that yet, though, you might want to send them a note and ask them how it'll affect you or if it will, or make sure that they're prepared for it. But anyway, I thought that method was really interesting and might be something that would be fascinating to you guys, even if you're not a retailer. It's something that it just shows the creativity. And yes, we've all said it. If people who commit cyber fraud just put that energy and brain power and problem solving and just how they get around systems and everything else towards something positive, we probably would have had a cure for cancer a long time ago. But our job as fraud fighters is to try to make their job much, much harder. And we do that by learning what, how they're doing their job. And we do that by educating each other on how things are being exploited. So even if you don't have a private label card, I hope that this kind of helps you realize, oh, they will figure out a way. And it's important to know what those ways are. You may not know how are they getting the card number or how are they doing this or that. But if you're able to do a little research or invest in a cybercrimes intelligence company, which David Meidman and I both said they're, they're not all the same, but there are some really good ones out there who will do the research and tell you exactly what's happening. And then you can find when you know what's happening, then you can find different ways to identify it. All right. So between April Fool's and fraud methods, this has been a little bit of a random episode this week. I am also extremely excited about what is to come in the next few months. Some really cool announcements, especially I cannot wait to share all of the results with you guys on the fraudology benchmarking survey that Forder sponsored. I'm really excited that Forder also is the sponsor for Q2 of fraudology because it means that I really get to share all of it with you and tell you how awesome of a partner they've been. Once I'm going to have Shoshana Marini come on and I think we'll be able to talk about it, but we got the raw result the other day and I geeked out for two hours. This is the first time I've seen some of these data points in a survey that actually makes sense and that I know that you guys can use as talking points when speaking with your leadership or advocating for new changes. And that just makes me excited in the nerdiest way. All right. I'm speaking of being excited. I'm excited to also geek out with Diana on a refund fraud next week. And I will look forward to speaking with you then. I hope you guys have a great weekend.
thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.